Good morning. The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 18, beginning to read at verses 9 through 14. You can follow along on page 4 of your bulletin. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Last week, we started a new teaching series. We called it Excusable Sins or Defensible Sins. And the idea here is uh, leading up between now till Good Friday to Easter, uh, we're looking at different areas of sin, uh, different areas of moral weakness, a failure to love God, a failure to love people around us that are actually easy to ignore, Or maybe easy to justify or to excuse or to kind of brush off as not being that bad. And just going one by one. Last week we talked about grumbling. Today we're going to hit on another juicy topic. But let's pray first together. Let's pray. God, we look to you as the giver of life. And even as we talk and hear about uh, hard issues of the brokenness of our souls, our sins... We know even this is a life-giving thing because it comes from you. Like a surgeon, God, you desire to address the deep needs of our hearts and cut things out, but really to save our lives, to give us life, to give us health. So trusting in your heart, we want to submit ourselves to you and say, God, have your way with us. Teach us what we need to hear. Give us ears to hear and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently learned a a new word, came across it on the web. I don't know if you've heard it yourself. It's this word, humble brag. (laughs) Do you know it? Humble brag. I think it's pretty new. It was actually a term, I think, coined by the writer or one of the writers of the hit sitcom Parks and Recreation who uh, was curious about the way in which we all tend to boast about our achievements with false humility. The way that we slide in good things that we've done or great things that we are, showing off without sounding like we're showing off. 
were humble brags. I actually created a Twitter site that you can go and look, and they're collecting thousands of these from all across the country because for some reason social media is like this perfect place for people to humble brag. And of course, some of the greatest uh, offenders of this uh, tend to be people in Hollywood who actually have something to boast about, but of course it includes common folk like you and me, Normal people uh, was just clicking through some of these and enjoyed some of them. Uh, for instance, this, uh, someone who wrote, I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? Um, or this one. Arg, just seen someone sitting opposite me on a train let me say that again. It's a little funky. It's Twitter, so it's like all jumbled, right? All right, just see someone sitting opposite me on the train reading my book. Quite embarrassed. <laughs> the way in which we do this all the time in just normal conversation, right? Slip in an unnecessary detail, maybe drop in a name or slide in a personal accomplishment. Here's another example. Here's another one. Ready? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Do you hear it in your heart, the humble brag? But you see, the thing that this passage is talking about is not just an annoying habit, something that's kind of humorous, a little bothersome, something that we can Twitter about, laugh about, maybe point out. But what Jesus is addressing here is actually a deeper thing, an often uglier thing, in fact, a sin, what we often call self-righteousness. Jesus is teaching a parable here. What's a parable? A fictional story that's told for the purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson. And he tells it about two different men, a classic good guy, bad guy story with a twist at the end, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees, of course, were the good guys in society, very passionate about moral purity, keeping the law of God. They were highly respected. Morally speaking, they were the ultimate neighbor in Jesus's day. The guy who's faithful to his wife, goes to church, Recycles his trash, tutors on the weekend, the one that you want to be living nearby, or maybe even dating your sister. Good guy. Then on the other hand, there's the tax collector. Despised by the Jewish community. Despised as a traitor, because after all, they were working for the Roman government, the oppressors, those that have colonized their land and their people. And despised as a thief, because after all, their common practice was to line their own pockets. They were corrupt. They were greedy. They overtaxed. The ambulance chaser, perhaps. The person that takes advantage of those in weak positions. The person you don't want your sister dating. The person that you don't want, perhaps, living next door to you. Luke gives us a little editorial comment in the very beginning of this story to explain why Jesus teaches this parable and who he is directing it towards. Verse 9, we see it right here. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told 
this parable. And again, in verse 14, he talks about those who exalt themselves before others. So let me try to give you a definition. What is self-righteousness? What are we talking about here? Self-righteousness is that smug, that, that sort of smug confidence that others are wrong while you are right and therefore superior to them. Self-righteousness is a smug confidence that others are wrong while you are right and therefore you are superior to them. I'm pretty good, so I'm better than you. And we do this with such creativity, don't we, friends? I see it in my life. You know, I started this exercise early in the week in preparation for the sermon of trying to detect and keep track of every instance of self-righteousness in my life. The list got too long (laughs) and too depressing. And so I won't go through in detail all of that for you. But certainly, many examples in my life, creative ways, not just on moral issues, but the way in which we can turn almost anything into a source of self-righteousness for us. Even petty things. Like what you might call bus seat self-righteousness. Something I saw in myself earlier this week, riding the bus. And a woman and her little boy come on to the bus. And I notice they need a seat. It's crowded. It's rush hour. I'm sitting there in my seat. And I know I should give up my seat. I hesitate. I do. I did. And finally, I decided, okay, let me get up and give my seat to this mom and her boy. They moved in, sat down, sat in the seat, and I felt pretty good about myself. (laughs) But not only did I feel good about myself, I started looking around, and I, I, I kid you not, I started saying to myself, what is wrong with this city? More people don't give up their seats to people that need them. People are so rude on buses. Or maybe uh, grammar self-righteousness. A friend of Paula's and mine actually gave us a, a book that uh, it's, 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 it's funny and troubling at the same time. It's a book where a person is collecting all these different pictures of public places where people make terrible errors in grammar. Um, it's called something like, I judge you because of your poor grammar. Uh, or so, and it's meant to be funny. I actually, you know, started thinking, man, this is actually kind of mean because you can tell some people don't know better. But grammar, poor grammar on signs or in newspaper articles or different things, and it's just sort of this long list of page after page of like mess ups in grammar. The way in which we can do that, and and I, I even said to Paula, I don't really like this book. You know, it's kind of mean, mean spirited, sort of self righteous. I've used that word, and then of course. I'm also the guy who's got a friend who's a wonderfully gifted preacher, but often has trouble with uh, subject-verb agreement and, uh, you know, details in terms of uh, the different forms of words and uh, guilty, even myself, self-righteous about the way others are self-righteous about grammar. Or there's religious self-righteousness. Scorning other religious views, thinking that people are stupid for believing those things. 
or political self-righteousness, our town, scorning other political views, thinking that people are stupid if they hold them because it's just so obviously, patently obvious that it's wrong. Of course, everything is obviously wrong to a self-righteous person. Or maybe social smoothness righteousness. The way in which we can look at a person that kind of might not be, uh, well, might have some social awkwardness or do a little social faux pas or whatever, and you sit there and you say, come on, you can do better. In other words, you can do like I do. Or parenting self-righteousness. A nice fresh one for me here, right? Looking out at other parents, seeing what they do. The quiet meditation of your heart, I do it wrong, I do it right, they do it wrong. Friends, what's an area of your life where you see the most self-righteousness operating underneath the surface? Let me give you a clue. You probably won't notice it immediately. That's how it operates. But where is self-righteousness in your life? Jesus addresses this issue, and I'm going to look at three things that this passage shows us on this topic, and we'll look at it, and then we'll have some Q&A. So feel free to jot down some notes, and we'll talk. First of all, we'll look at the symptoms of self-righteousness. How do you know you've got it? What are the symptoms? Secondly, the root of self-righteousness. Where does it come from? And then thirdly, the alternative to self-righteousness. How can we change? So symptom, root, and alternative. First, the symptoms of self-righteousness. You know, uh, we're talking about this as one of our defensible or excusable sins. And the reason why is because self-righteousness is so self-deceptive. I mean, if you look at this prayer that the Pharisee prays in this passage, it just almost sounds right. After all, the things that he lists are bad things. And he is saying, I thank you, God. And it is good that he is not doing certain things. And so it can sound almost right. Self-righteousness is so hard to detect when you're the source of it. And sometimes humorously, like the humble brag thing, easier to detect from the outside. It's why we need to be in community with one another, pointing things out, helping each other to see what's going on in our hearts. We don't see it. The Pharisee looks good on the outside, but if you look more closely, well, maybe, just maybe, when he's taking out his recycling, he's muttering to himself, no one else cares about this like I do. No one recycles. Or maybe when he's tutoring kids on the weekend, his real motivation is, well, if I don't do this, who's going to take care of these sinful kids? And yeah, he's been in his marriage for a long time. But if you ask his wife, maybe she says, he's never actually said sorry for a single thing in all our years. Or he goes to church, okay, maybe. But he does get mad at God anytime God doesn't give him what he thinks he owes him. We need help detecting these things. And so we've, we've got to find these symptoms. And Jesus gives us a couple of these things. And I'll just tell them to you in three C's. Comparison, contempt, and covering up. What are some symptoms, ways that we can detect what's going on in our lives? First of all, comparison. Our self-righteousness makes us always compare ourselves to one another all the time. The Pharisee here can't pray without talking about himself, and he can't talk about himself without comparing himself to the guy next to him. Verse 11 again, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, defining himself over against others. 
robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. If you are constantly gauging how you're doing in life, or even wiring your self-image according to how you view other people and how they're doing, and you always find yourself engaging in sideways glances, there is a good chance that self-righteousness is brewing in your hearts. Because this is how it works. Looking at what others are doing and trying to figure out constantly, am I above them or am I below them? Am I above them or am I below them? How am I doing? Of course, the convenient thing is that in comparing ourselves constantly with other people, we're not doing the one comparison that really matters here, and that is comparing ourselves to God. That would humble you. To actually say, how, not how am I doing against this other person, but that same area of life that they're not doing so well that I'm feeling pretty good about myself for? How am I doing in comparison to the righteousness of Jesus, the holiness of God, His perfect standard of love towards Him and towards neighbor? If we actually started to do that, as God invites us to do, it would humble us. We'll start to say like the, the psalmist, if you, God, actually kept a record of my wrongs, if you, God, actually started to tabulate my actual righteousness in life, who could stand? Who'd be able to stand up against that test? Who'd be able to compare against you? That would humble us. But you can only be self-righteous when you compare yourself against others and not against God. First symptom, comparison. Second symptom is contempt. Contempt. You hear it in his words, God, thank you that I'm not like those other men. All those other robbers and other evildoers, other adulterers. Or even like this tax collector over here. Verse 9 tells us again that this was one of the main things that Jesus was after. He told this parable to some who were confident in their own righteousness and what? Looked down on everybody else. Because we're always comparing ourselves to one another, self-righteousness always makes us look down on those who we believe aren't doing as well as us. This is how it works. This is how it works in my heart. Does it in yours. When I'm operating out of self-righteousness, it's not just that he's wrong. It's how can he be so wrong? It's not just that he's wrong. How can he not know that he's wrong? See, it's not just that the person is wrong or mistaken. The person is now an idiot to you. There's a personal scorn that starts to creep in. You didn't just do a wrong thing. What is wrong with you? Looking down on people around us. The Greek word that's here translated look down on literally means to see or to treat as nothing. This is what we do. And this contempt shows up in all sorts of ways because, look, not a lot of us walk around saying to one another, you are nothing to me. You are nothing to me, right? What does that actually look like in real life? Well, it's seen in the way that we're so critical about the faults and the flaws and failures of other people. The way in which we're so good at being on our high horse and inspecting the flaws of other people with a microscope and then looking at our own faults with a telescope. If at all, right? 
The way in which we're so harsh towards others. Sometimes disproportionately harsh considering the situation. We just lash out. Because they're not just wrong about this issue. It just bugs you if you're self-righteous. It bugs you that they're wrong, that they're so wrong, that they're not right. You see it in the way in which we're just so poor at listening. After all, why listen when I already have the right answer? Why should I actually give this person the time of day when they actually ought to be listening to me? Friends, one of the big signs and symptoms of self-righteousness is that you hear yourself talking too much. Because you feel like your words are a blessing to the world. (laughs) And you need to give input. And you need to make corrections. And you need to critique. And you need to educate. And you need to inform. The way in which we don't listen by always arguing other people, picking fights all the time, or having a hard time talking to people who disagree with you, or maybe you can't ever lose an argument. You're defensive. All these different ways in which contempt pops up in our lives. When we're self-righteous, we start to look down on other people. Do you see that? Comparison, contempt, third symptom here, covering up. Covering up. The Pharisees got a pretty high view of himself, doesn't he? Pretty good list of ways in which he has a right to boast before people, before God, listing off his good stuff, listing off even his religious resume. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get, serve in the local community, generous with my possessions, read my Bible, care for my roommates, Going down that list, he has nothing but good things to say about himself. But first of all, notice it's a very superficial and selective view of righteousness. That there are only certain kinds of things, call it neon things, that this Pharisee is pointing out and looking at. A hierarchy of sins. These are the really bad things that those other people are engaged in, but I'm doing okay. But he's standing before God and before other people and has nothing to say about his brokenness. And part of it is because he has a superficial superficial view of sin. Not realizing that even the self-righteousness that he is engaging with here is a sin. Talking about himself in this way and looking down on others. Friends, self-righteousness makes it hard for us to be honest about our weaknesses. It makes it hard for us to share our needs. And so we're always hiding. Hiding behind different masks. Hiding behind facades. Hiding behind long lists of accomplishments. Are you always reciting to people things that you have accomplished? Whether morally or vocationally or personally and relationally, sometimes it's because we're terrified to actually confront the fact that we are weak, broken, needy, Desperate for God's mercy. But this is what self-righteousness does. It leads us to cover up. To close off. To only talk about our strengths. Deny our weaknesses. Not see the need that we have for the mercy of God. Take this diagnostic test throughout this week. A, A little test that you can run with yourself to get in touch with your inner Pharisee, if you will. 
fill in the blanks. I'm so glad I'm not like... Who is it? What group of people that maybe you look down on? Maybe that annoy you, bug you? Or even like, and fill in the blank with an individual... Maybe someone that's been grating on your nerves. Maybe somebody that you've been highly critical of. Or maybe someone that really makes you feel good about yourself. You're kind of glad they exist because they make you feel good. Unlike them, I, and fill in the blank, something that you do, your sources of righteousness. And then, of course, don't forget to pat yourself on the back. Low diagnostic test. It might hurt a little bit, but dare to do it. God, I'm so glad I'm not like this group or even like this person. Unlike them, this is what I do. What is self-righteousness like in your life? The root of self-righteousness, secondly. Not just the symptoms, but the root of self-righteousness. Where does this come from? We've been talking about self-righteousness primarily in horizontal terms. In the ways in which it affects our relationships, in the way that we relate to other people, the way that it relates to our own self-image, our view of ourselves. But Jesus actually tells us in this story that there's a deeper root. There's a deeper root, and it has to do with how we relate to God. Maybe you're someone here that doesn't consider yourself a religious person, but you might be on board with the reality of self-righteousness in our lives. Will you consider that the Bible tells us the deep root of where that comes from in my life and in your life is actually how we relate to the God of the universe? Look, in verse 14, when Jesus tells us at the end of the story that it was the tax collector, surprisingly, shockingly, who went home justified before God. We see he's talking about the way in which the tax collector is relating to God. Justified. This technical word in the New Testament that means pronounced righteous. Seen as righteous in the eyes of God. Who was Jesus specifically directing this parable to? Well, verse 9 again tells us, to some who were confident in their own righteousness. Another way of translating that phrase actually is trusting in themselves for righteousness. And here is what we're getting at. At the root of all of our self-righteousness, which drives us to look down on other people, which is a part of why we're always comparing ourselves to one another, which hides us, closes ourselves off from other people. At the root of this self-righteousness is a commitment to trust in my own ability to offer deeds and actions and myself to God as righteousness that's acceptable to Him. At the heart and the root of our self-righteousness is my desire to trust in me as a source of being right with God. And here's the stunning implication of this passage, friends. If we look at it with a Pharisee, good people can be just as far from God as bad people and sometimes even farther. Good people can be just as far from God, quote-unquote good people, and sometimes even farther than quote-unquote bad people because of the way in which Jesus is defining sin and self-righteousness here. Sin is not just about your badness. Sin is about trusting in your goodness to save you. 
Sin is not just about avoiding badness in your life. True repentance, true change is about acknowledging our tendency to trust in our goodness, the righteous things that we do to save us, where those things themselves become our God. You can avoid God by falling in love with your unrighteousness. You can also avoid God by falling in love with your righteousness too. Saying to yourself, saying to other people, saying to God, I've kept these rules, I've done these good things, and therefore God's mercy is for everybody else because I'm good. Do you see how this works? At the root of it all is an overconfidence that you are measuring up in your life before God, and we know deep in our hearts we are not. We are not. If you try to stand before God with your own record of righteousness, if I try to say, okay, God, actually, let's take a real account of my life and how righteous I actually am, not just how I interact with people and how I'm trying to let people see myself as, well, I'm dead meat, and so are you. Who was it in the story who went home justified? pronounced righteous in God's sight. It was not the self-righteous Pharisee. Friends, we can spend our whole lives trying to build up a record of righteousness and bringing it before God and saying, God, will you accept this according to your perfect standard of righteousness and love? We can do that our whole lives and not only live a life of self-deception, but we can miss out on the true righteousness that is given to us in Jesus freely by His grace. You can miss out on what God is offering to you. And it's truly a tragedy. Don't let it happen to you. This is what Jesus is talking about in the second half of verse 14 when He says, For everyone who exalts himself one day will be humbled. It's a terrifying thing to stand before God with nothing but your own record of righteousness because it won't measure up. But Jesus does give us an alternative. We'll close with this. How can we change? What do we need? Here's the alternative to self-righteousness. It's what we see in the tax collector. It's humility of heart. It's a hunger for mercy. It's an honest accounting of who he really is. A person that, yes, does do good things once in a while, but a person who's desperately flawed, people like you and me. The tax collector is realizing his life is not working. Are you realizing, are you starting to realize your life is not working? He knows his life has been centered on himself, playing God, trampling over other people. He knows he needs help. We see this even in his body language, the way it shows the state of his humble heart. He stood at a distance, Jesus said. Didn't care to be noticed. This moment is about other people. It's just about him and God. How different he is from the Pharisee. We're told he would not even look up to heaven. You see, he understands that he is accountable to God, undeserving of God's kindness, a sense of unworthiness. And he beat his breast, which is an ancient Jewish gesture of sorrow. His words that he prays comes from his heart. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the 
picture that Jesus portrays before his audience. As he talks about these different men coming in and out of the temple and how they pray. Every Jewish listener would have heard Jesus' story and pictured what was going on with great clarity, which we might miss because we weren't there. But of course the story would have included this Pharisee who's praying with great arrogance and self-righteousness, talking about himself, comparing himself with other people, showing contempt, looking down on others. And then far off at the distance, another man, a tax collector, who's humbly crying out to God and saying, I can't do this. You can, but I can't. I need you, God. But right in the background, in that temple, will have been a clear visual of a sacrifice that always would have been burning in the temple, a sacrifice for sin. And it would have filled the whole area with an aroma of burning flesh as that animal was not only killed, but also burned. Maybe it was a lamb Maybe it was a goat, maybe a little pigeon, if a person couldn't afford the larger animals. And for centuries and centuries and even millennia, this whole sacrificial system was used by God in the temple precincts as a little visual aid for the people of Israel. That as they came to God and asked for His mercy, that they would bring before Him an animal Not because animals would do anything in and of themselves, but in sacrificing them, that animal would serve as the person's proxy, as their substitute, as their stand-in. So that when that animal was sacrificed, the person would be coming before God and saying, look, this here, this death, this blood, this judgment is what I deserve. And you're picturing it before me, God, that I need a substitute Justice must be served, but would you in your mercy serve it upon the head of someone else, not upon me? The word here actually used in this prayer by the tax collector, God have mercy on me, mercy. It's not the usual word in the New Testament for mercy. It's actually another word that's sometimes translated propitiate. It carries the meaning absorb the wrath that I deserve. God, would you do this for me as I look upon this animal sacrifice and know that one day, somehow, in some way, you would do this for the forgiveness of my sins. To establish a new kind of righteous standing that I can have before you. And as this tax collector prays this humble prayer, God, no excuses, no explanations, no list of righteous deeds where I'm trying to atone for myself by pointing out and making sure you recognize all the great things that I've done. No, none of that. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And right in front of him, a sacrificed lamb. And right in front of him, perhaps... As Jesus tells this story, reminders of the way in which when Jesus came upon the scene of Israel, and John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for him, first seeing him off in the distance, stands up and points out and says, Look, behold, what? The Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. The one who would provide mercy because he would be that proxy, that stand-in, that substitute, that propitiation 
absorbing the wrath of God that I deserve, including for my self-righteousness, this God who gives mercy to self-righteous sinners like you and me. And not only giving us forgiveness, but actually crediting us the righteousness of Jesus. Do you understand that this is the good news of the grace of the gospel? Not just that God doesn't count your sins against you, but he counts all the righteousness of Jesus for you. That Jesus that God will treat you with all the favor and the blessing that is rightly accorded to all the right, loving, and just, and perfect deeds and motives and desires and thoughts of Jesus' life because He stands in your place. Righteousness, true righteousness, not faux righteousness, not prove it to me self-righteous righteousness, but real righteousness, not just in comparison to other people, but before the throne of God. True righteousness now finally given to you. And if I could just get my heart around that and start to trust in Jesus for righteousness rather than trusting in myself for righteousness, maybe, maybe I'll just start to understand what Jesus means when He says the one who humbles himself will be exalted Because there's no more exalted place than being justified, pronounced righteous before God. There's no more exalted place than being treated just like the Father treats His Son with perfect love and perfect acceptance. So I don't need to fake it anymore. So I don't need to read out my boastful lists of right deeds and goodness. And I don't need to look down on people anymore because I am righteous in God's sight. And I don't need to work my whole life into a frenzy trying to prove it to myself or other people. And you see how this starts to change community life as well. We're finally, just finally, maybe we turn down the volume and the self-righteousness that's in all of our hearts. And we're actually able to start to be honest with each other. We're able to be a broken mess before each other. We start to invite people into the mess because we know that we're not people that are standing up, propped up, superior to one another, but actual fellow sinners desperately in need of the mercy of God, inviting fellow sinners into a common brokenness, which Jesus is increasingly over time making whole. Hallelujah. And a community that's set free to actually love people Because when you're self-righteous, when you're competing and comparing and looking down on people, you can't love. You can't actually draw people into your life. When you realize you don't have it all together, like the tax collector, you can start to care for people because you no longer feel morally superior to them. You actually let them into your life because they're not beneath you anymore. You actually care for your neighbors and their needs because they're not beneath you anymore. You're inviting people into your broken places, seeing them as peers. And you know that people might be broken and flawed and sinful in different ways, but you got your junk too. So that means you're on the same team. As our self-righteousness slowly over time is undercut by the grace of God. Friends, here's the great paradox of the gospel, that Christianity is a race to the bottom. 
Because grace always flows downhill. It's almost as if we have access to the glory of God and the forgiveness of God and the righteousness that's given to us in Christ, but the door is down here, way down low, and the only way that you can get through that doorway into glory is by getting on your knees and sometimes even on your face, crawling through that door, humbling yourself, which really is just another way of saying being honest about your sin, being honest about how flawed you really are. Will we humble ourselves before God in joy and gratitude for what He's given to us, the Lamb of God, the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God? If we dare to humble ourselves like the tax collector, we just might go home justified today. Let's pray. Jesus, we bring ourselves to You Inviting your inspection, but also inviting your healing, your refreshment, your power to lift us up. Even as we've looked at self-righteousness in detail, God, this very passage shows us your desire is not just to humble us and leave us there, but in humbling us to lift us up in joy, in new assurance, in celebration of your gospel. And the great boast of being made righteous in God's sight through Jesus Christ. So lift up our hearts, God. Encourage us. Be near to us. We pray this for your glory. Amen.